Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here's what we learned from the NFL's investigation into the Miami Dolphins. Brian Flores is a snitch who embraced the identity of a victim. He hurt the cause of black coaches. That's the takeaway. Sure, the NFL found the Dolphins guilty of tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton and docked the franchise two draft picks, but the wrongdoing of Dolphins owner Stephen Ross isn't the story here. Flores is. He looks weak and untrustworthy. He admitted in a statement that he wrote a letter complaining to other Miami executives that Ross wanted him to lose games in 2019 to improve Miami's draft position. That's a snitch move. He wouldn't get on board with Ross's desire to acquire Tom Brady. That's insubordination. I don't blame Ross for firing Flores. He can't be trusted. You can't trust a man who sees himself as a victim. The victim mentality is the greatest enemy of black men and black coaches. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Uh, We have a fantastic Wednesday show uh, planned for you today. Uh, It is Wednesday. That means it's Harmony. It's Hump Day. Uh, Obviously, uh, Pastor Bobby, Pastor Anthony uh, will be here, and it'll be a continuation of the conversation. I kind of started yesterday, I think, with Shamika, the, the questions I have for the pastors are about standards and rules and stipulations. Do those need to be added to the Christian church uh, to inspire men to do better and so we can have a better impact on the culture and perhaps uh, produce more male leadership, more men of integrity? Anyway, it's taking some of the practices that you see in the Mormon church, you see in Catholicism, and asking can they be applied, some of it, applied to the traditional Christian church and will we potentially get better results? Uh, It's a conversation I want to have because it's stuff I've been thinking about, and so we'll go to our two experts, uh, Bobby and Anthony, and get into that. Uh, Steve Kim uh, will be here, uh, as will T.J. Moe. As will uh, Virgil Walker, Uh, you guys remember Virgil Walker from G3 Ministries. I think today will be his third appearance on the show. And (laughs) I I can't believe, uh, David, one of our producers made the point to me like, hey man, uh, our favorite people, Maz Ture and Matt Walsh are bickering. And and I wouldn't say this is bickering, but Virgil Walker uh, has written a piece uh, analyzing and critiquing Tony Evans, the minister, Reverend Tony Evans. You guys have heard me talk a lot about Tony and uh, how much I appreciate Tony's work. 
Uh, Virgil Walker has written a piece criticizing Tony Evans's uh, kingdom race theology or kingdom race theory. Uh, it's kind of his answer to critical race theory. And, and so we'll get into that uh, with Virgil Walker, uh, but we'll start where I've already teased uh, where we're gonna start. We're gonna start by talking about Brian Flores, the Miami Dolphins, Stephen Ross, and what has happened there. And <clears throat> the, the Dolphins, uh, the NFL has leveled uh, some punishment towards the Dolphins for their recruitment of Tom Brady on two different occasions while Brady was under contract, I think initially with the New England Patriots, and then a second time when he's under contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the, the Dolphins were trying to get him there, offering him perhaps to be an executive with the team, a partial owner with the team, while also playing. All of that's illegal, he's under contract. They did the same thing, I guess, trying to get Sean Payton. Uh, they didn't ask the Saints for permission, and, and all of this spawned out of, of uh, Brian Flores' allegations about being mistreated uh, by the Dolphins and his allegation that Stephen Ross tried to get him uh, to lose games and offered him $100,000 for each game. This sparked an investigation into the Dolphins that revealed the, the tampering deal as it relates to Tom Brady and, and uh, Sean Payton. And the, the Dolphins have now lost a first-round pick and I believe a third-round pick, a first-round pick in the 2023 draft and a third-round pick in the 2024. Stephen Ross fined, I believe, $1.5 million. Uh, and, and people are like, you know, what's the t they, they They cleared them of the tanking allegations and basically said, look, there's no... 100% uh, truth here that we can't figure out what really went on here, that maybe Brian Flores uh, took some off-the-cuff comments, joking comments. There's no proof that Stephen Ross was serious about paying the guy to lose games. And so we're going to let that go. We're fining him a million and a half. We're taking away these draft picks. We're moving on. Brian Flores issued a statement yesterday about it, saying that I am disappointed to learn that the investigator minimized Mr. Ross's offers and pressure to tank games, especially when I wrote and submitted a letter at the time to Dolphins executives documenting my serious concerns. This man just copped to being a snitch and thinks it's a good look. This man gets an NFL head coaching job. Stephen Ross is paying him three, four, five million dollars a year. Stephen Ross is the boss. This is insubordinate. This idiot thinks I'm going to write a letter to Stephen Ross's other employees for the team that Stephen Ross owns. I'm going to write a letter to other employees Man, Stephen Ross is trying to get me to do something, uh, you know, I don't want to do. Stephen Ross wants me to lose games, and I'm going to write a letter and tattle on him, on the owner. The owner of the team. And this is, again, this is a byproduct of a victim mentality that Brian Ross sees himself as a victim, and it's a, it's a byproduct of people owe me because I'm a victim. 
And so it doesn't matter that Stephen Ross owns the team. I'm Brian Flores. I'm black. I'm a victim. And I don't have to submit to the will, the vision, the desires of ownership. I'm Brian Flores. Screw Stephen Ross. Who, look, those NFL jobs are so rare. There's 32 of them. And when someone gives you that, you owe them something. This, and again, this whole mentality that we bought into a victimhood and this whole racial uh, idolatry thing that we have bought into, it's all poisonous. Poisonous. Because it creates idiots. We're like, oh, the man that just gave me my dream job and millions of dollars to execute the dream job, I don't owe him anything. I'm Brian Flores, I'm black, I'm, I'm King Kong, I'm the greatest thing in the world. I, I, uh, it doesn't matter, I don't have to fall in line behind ownership. This is the, the stupid, naive, foolish mentality that we are making pervasive among black men and black people. And that's why you have so many black employees sitting on a job thinking they can do whatever it is they want to do because I'm a victim, I'm special, there's nothing you can do about it, I'm black, if you do anything to me, I'm going to accuse you of racism and the whole world's going to come down on you. And we wonder why NFL owners are leery about hiring black coaches when this is our mentality? When everybody in the media jumps on board with that mentality and says, you go boy or girl, you do that. You, you accuse the person who gave you your dream job, is paying you millions of dollars, you sabotage them if, if they do anything you disagree with or think is wrong. If I'm an owner, a white owner, if I'm a white owner, I would rather take my chances with a white coach who will not turn around and spit in my face if I ask him to do something that slightly violates his integrity. I'm just sorry. I'm just keeping it real. And again, I, I'm not, because it, we're not, the, the illegal recruitment of Tom Brady or whatever, that's so commonplace in professional sports. And the, hey, I'd prefer you not to win a bunch of games this year so we can go out and get a quarterback in the draft. That's commonplace in all of professional sports. They do it in the NBA. They do it in the NFL. They do it in the NHL. Stephen Ross isn't asking Brian Flores to commit murder. He's not asking, hey, man, let's go on a trip to Epstein Island. He's asking him to do what is commonplace in professional sports. And yes, is that, what Steve, is that what Brian Flores wants to do? Lose games? No. But if your boss asks you to, or gives you the indication like, hey man, I get it, but this year we, we want you to work on developing a culture, work on uh, your coaching skills, 
but we're not all about winning this year. We're all about getting the budget in order and making sure we get a high draft pick because in this league, the quarterback thing is essential to success. Hey, if he were asking Brian Flores to do something that was highly, highly immoral, I would get Brian Flores writing a letter to executives and complaining about it and putting it on the record. But all he was doing was asking Brian Flores, hey, fall in line, bro. I gave you the job. I'm giving you four or five million dollars a year. Fall in line. And if we're not willing to fall in line, if we can't accept that the boss, the owner, gets to set the vision for his organization, we're not good candidates to be head coaches. It's this victim mentality and this entitlement that the whole world owes us something. That's what undermines our ability to be chosen for these critical leadership positions in professional sports and in any endeavor. Will you fall in line? And there'll be someone that'll go on MSNBC or ESPN or Fox Sports and call you a sellout. Let them call you a sellout and then say, hey, are you going to give me four or five million dollars to coach your NFL team? If Bomani Jones or Jamel Hill or L. Duncan or Mina Kimes or Ryan Clark call you a sellout, are they going to give you an NFL head coaching job and millions of dollars? They're the actual sellouts because they're trying to talk you into doing something that will cost you your job. No one asked Brian Flores to, they asked Brian Flores, hey man, I want you to go, I know the speed limit says 55, but I want you to go 62. Yeah, it's breaking the law, but come on, man. We're going, ain't nobody, ain't, ain't, ain't nobody getting in trouble for going 62 and a 55. That's what Stephen Ross asked him to do. And this dude snitched and tried to get the owner in trouble. Cost, now it's cost them draft picks, cost the owner a million and a half dollars. Ain't no way in hell anybody reading this dolphin story and the fallout from it. Ain't no way in hell they're hiring Brian Flores. Only an idiot, black or white. If, if, if LeBron James bought an NFL franchise, he would be stupid for hiring Brian Flores because Brian Flores has clearly shown he, he's not going to buy into someone else's vision. He's the smartest person in the room at all times. And you know what? If he were Bill Belichick sitting on two or three or six Super Bowl rings, I'd agree, smartest guy in the room. But when you're sitting on none and this is your first time as a head coach, give me a break, fall in line, work the system. This guy has hurt 
black coaches. His lawsuit is hurt, and the details of this investigation has hurt black coaches. It defines them as victims and untrustworthy. And I don't care who does or doesn't like it. I'm trying, again, my problem with all these other idiots on, in, in the media and over social media, on these platforms, they don't want to tell you how to succeed. They want to tell you how to make a gesture that will make you popular over social media. Brian Flores, and again, we can go back and play the tape of, of the whole little cast of white lawyers that surrounded Brian Flores and are applauding him as he, they write uh, documents and call the NFL a plantation slavery and all this other stuff. They've talked him into some dumb shit. And we'll get into this later, but it's, it's like that Eli Mistel that was on MSNBC talking about Herschel Walker being a house Negro and he'll do whatever the Republicans tell him to do or say. <laughs> it's the leftist. It's the le and I'm, Brian Flores looks and smells like a leftist to me, and he's done exactly what they told him to do. Make a fool out of yourself, piss all over yourself, and piss all over every other black coach in the NFL. Make it damn near impossible for you to get another head coaching job and make it harder for the next black coach to get a job. Ah, that's success. You kept it real. They love you over Twitter and social media. You'll never be a head coach again. Uh, that's my fire. Uh, we'll bring in uh, the Korean Cosell uh, to see if he can fan these flames or not. Uh, Steve, uh, welcome back to the show. Seems like I haven't seen you in 24 hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or has it been 48? I can't remember. But uh, Brian Flores, I contend uh, this when I look at the details of this investigation and what has happened to the Dolphins because of this guy, I think he's hurt other black coaches. Well, first Terrible. of all, uh, good Wednesday to you, Jason. And here I thought you really eviscerated Bill Russell, but geez, yeah, a couple things <laughs> about Brian Flores. I don't. I think he's right up there with the most hated, despised man in South Florida. Maybe right below Fidel Castro, uh, judging by the reaction that I'm seeing on Twitter from Dolphins fans, specifically in the Miami area. And uh, look, Brian Flores, good thing he's not in the NBA, because if he didn't like tanking or tampering, oh, man, he'd have a hard time in the association, right? But I agree with you in this sense, a couple things. Number one, do teams tank? You know, that that's a term that people use. But there is a rebuilding process. There have been numerous teams, specifically in the National Football League and the NBA, where there's such a premium on draft choices, unlike baseball, perhaps, that, yes, teams will just outright say, you know what, any high-priced veteran or anyone that's past his prime or a salary cap number we don't like, we're going to dump them. We're going to play for the future. In fact, Jimmy Johnson in 1989 gets the job, goes from the University of Miami to Dallas. He saw a very aged roster, roster coming off a 3-13 team, and he basically told guys like Randy White, Tutal Jones, guys, you've seen better days. We're going in a different direction. 
And and I've read and I've heard where Jimmy Johnson said, look, with that roster, I could have gone six and ten or seven and nine. I said, you know what? We got to rebuild this thing. He went one and fifteen. And Jerry Jones and Jimmy at that point, their visions were aligned and they said, you know what? We're gonna play for the big picture. And eventually with that Herschel Walker trade, they ended up really parlaying that into a dynasty. And it happens in a lot of different sports. Didn't the 76ers have a five-year stretch not too long ago called the process where they were literally winning less than 20 games a year and it was unwatchable. And while they haven't necessarily won an NBA title, uh, they're a pretty good team now because they had a certain vision of where the franchise wanted to go. And you're right. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you don't have to like Stephen Ross. You don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to respect him, really. But he is the boss. And what he says goes. And where I do think Brian Flores has a real issue is I think he's an absolute pariah. I would be very, very wary uh, of hiring him, not necessarily black coaches, even though I think his actions certainly don't speak well of can we hire a black coach. Let me go to the example of Todd Bowles, who's now the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Has to be one of the best jobs in the league. He had a very, very difficult assignment in his first head coaching stint with the New York Jets. That's a tough job, Jason. Even when they try to lose, they really lose to a point where you can't ever win. And he ended up getting jettisoned. But because he actually went along with the plan, was a good soldier, was a good, solid employee, people thought highly enough of him that he was going to get a coordinator job. Obviously, he had a coach, uh, the older guy, Bruce Arians, that really thought highly of him, had a personal relationship. And now he has one of the very best teams in football. I do not see a similar arc for Brian Flores because of his own behavior. Let me be clear on this, Steve, and I know I put you sometimes in a tough spot, but you can handle it. Uh, it's not the skin color. It's the mentality. And, and so you'll hear me say he's put black coaches in a tough spot. What he's done is put coaches with a victim's mentality in a tough spot. And unfortunately, we have a culture built around black people where we're supposed to embrace a victim's mentality. And so people sometimes listen to this show and think, man, Whitlock's really hard on black people. No, I'm really hard on people who embrace a victim's mentality. And that affliction just happens to hit us the hardest. It's no different. I'm really hard on fat people. It's, an, it's a problem that affects me and other people, and I'm hard on it because it's detrimental. And so just like being fat is detrimental, a victim's mentality, particularly for someone interested in being a leader, is it, it destroys your ability to lead. And so we have the whole sports media and the whole media industrial complex has created a victim's mentality that they love to push black people into. And, and so I look at this guy's behavior, like this dude wrote a letter complaining about his, the owner, not his boss, the owner. I could see, let's say he had a problem with Chris Greer, the general manager. Write a letter to Stephen Ross complaining about your boss. No problem. But you, the owner, you're writing his underlings 
that, hey man, the owners asked me to do something I don't want to do and I put this in writing. He's like, I'm putting together a paper trail of what I think is unethical behavior from ownership. I don't blame Stephen Ross for firing him. If, if me, the old me, I would have slapped him and then fired him. Just like, are you really this stupid? Some, obviously, your parents did not whoop your butt well enough, so let me do it to you as a grown man. You don't snitch on the owner. You don't snitch on the guy paying you millions of dollars to, for one of the most coveted jobs in all of sports. If there's some rear ends worthy of being kissed, and the guy that gives you that job, particularly when it's your first time, you haven't had a bunch of success. Uh, if he had won Super Bowl, if he were Mike Tomlin and had a bit of an attitude with, with Stephen Ross, I'd get it. I'd get it. Like, Tomlin's got some credentials. This guy has none. He has no humility. And, and again, that's this victim entitlement mentality undermines your humility. You think there's a debt owed to you, and it's blown up in, in, in Brian Flores's face, and the reality is uh, it's going to impact other black coaches. You know, Thomas Sowell has called this the philosophy of grievance. In other words, it's the monetization of victimhood, and he's pushed into it. I remember Brian Flores months ago when this first came out. He was on one of those shows where he did an interview alongside his lawyer, and I'll be honest with you, it did not look like he even knew what his own case was. He looked like Pinocchio with Geppetto by his side. I mean, he was such a puppet. And as I'm watching clips of this, I said to myself, Brian Flores is being used here. He is being used as a vessel, an empty one at that. And I'm not even so sure what he knows, what he's angry about. But uh, – the bottom line is that you're right about that. I mean, let's go back to Jimmy Johnson. After their second Super Bowl in 1993, he did not get along with Jerry Jones. Now, you could cast blame and say that Jerry Jones made the wrong decision in jettisoning what was the best coach in the National Football League. But like you said, he owns the team. He is the boss. He's the one that cuts the paycheck. And with that comes a certain privilege. But I also think we have to focus in on the media that covers sports and the National Football League. Are there no writers out there or any major or significant media members out there who actually find fault with Brian Flores because all of the coverage is one-sided? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're telling me there's unanimity in this particular subject, that, but this is the reality. If any media member, especially if they are white, says, you know what? Brian Flores was not a great employee, did not get along with the plan. They are absolutely either, A, not allowed to write it or say it because their editors would say, no, not, we can't do that, or two, they're afraid of the pushback and they don't want to take the social media heat. I also think that there's a certain amount or a good bit of cowardice with the media, and if you don't hold people in line or in check, well, then at, at a certain point, these types of actions will go unfettered. Steve, uh, great job as always. Is that a new microphone you have or something? Well, yeah, I'm getting so many complaints because my dulcet tones and my voice like Barry White is very distorted. And I said, you know what? I'm going to invest in my own self and get a microphone. It's really fancy. It's got this thing. It's got the hookups and the things. 
So I know that I'm now sounding like Anita Baker in her prime. So all those complaints out there in the comments, I want now compliments on my new microphone. It's really nice. Really nice. I, I, you do sound better. Uh, I'm glad you said Anita Baker and not Beyonce because I've now listened to the whole new Beyonce album and it is hot garbage. She's profane on there. She's not really singing. I don't know what she's doing. I have no, any, anyway, I got the whole little Bayhive upset with me over Twitter. Oh, they're buzzing. So they're guess, buzzing. Yeah. They're buzzing. Yeah, they're just feeding them. Feeding them. <laughs> All right, hey, uh, thank you, Steve. And if you're watching over YouTube right now, uh, could you put your review of the Beyonce album in the chat? Have you listened to Renaissance? Is it as garbage as I think it is? And I know I'm taking heat. Someone, uh, some people gave me heat because, like, dude, wh what are you doing? Talking, why are you even listening to Beyonce's album? I thought you were the guy that leaned into masculinity or whatever. I like to sample everything. I used to like Beyonce. Now she's a satanic angel of death and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and you can hear it in the music. Uh, it ain't tuned by, that voice ain't tuned by God right now, and that music certainly hadn't been blessed by God. But anyway, uh, tell me what you think in the chat, so leave me a comment. Uh, Beyonce's new album, Renaissance, Hot Garbage, youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Uh, let me take care of a little business. School is right around the corner, and many kids did not know where their meals will come from this semester. For every order in the month of August, Good Ranchers is donating to help those kids by providing high quality and nutritious meals. And you can join this campaign by ordering a box of 100% American meat. It makes a huge difference in the lives and minds of these kids. Good Ranchers is an award-winning food delivery service that brings 100% American meat and seafood to your door. They source the best of American farms so that you can get the highest quality food possible. A good meal goes a long way for anyone, especially a child. They need protein, vitamins, and nutrition to help them grow. So fill your plate while you fuel their minds with Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to join the movement today. You'll get a $30 off your order, free shipping, and donate life-changing food to kids in need. Giving back never felt or tasted so good. Let's help them hit and pass their goal of 100,000 meals donated. All we have to do is change the way we buy meat. You can get better quality, better flavor, and more impact with Good Ranchers, so don't think twice. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless or use my code fearless to claim your offer of $30 off any box of beef, chicken, or seafood. I want us, our group, to donate the most meals out of everyone. This is a great cause, and I think we should all get behind it. Fill the plates, fuel the minds, change the future one meal at a time with Good Ranchers. Find out why they're the fastest growing meat company in America. I love this. I absolutely love this. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this today. I'm glad we're talking about it right now because I'm going to hop on Good Ranch. I'm a, I'm a soldier just like you guys. So I'm going to hop on uh, GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. I almost typed in fearless.com slash GoodRanchers. Uh, I'm going to hop on. I'm going to send uh, my sister uh, some meat. And I, may, I wonder if my mother needs a refill as well, but be a good soldier, help some students out. You gotta eat. It might as well be good ranchers. They support us and what we believe in. If you wanna help me, you wanna help this show, help good ranchers and help kids. TJ Moe, Erks.
All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to roll out to St. Louis where uh, TJ Moe is going to join us. TJ, I'm going to start here. Uh, you introduced Eric Schmidt last night after he won his primary. Uh, look at you, man. I mean, you're the, you're the good luck charm for Eric Schmidt. I keep telling everybody I'm a nobody, but they are not listening. Um, I, I got to know Eric over Twitter, similar to how you and I got to know each other a little bit. We were both very anti-mask. Um, I live in St. Louis County. He filed some lawsuits against that. His campaign headquarters is uh, basically in the same strip as my Smoothie King. And so um, he didn't know that at the time, but he asked me to come. He said, hey, I'm, I'm doing my campaign opening at the headquarters. This was back in like November. He said, you, can you come speak at it? I said, sure. Um, I did something at a Ted Cruz came in and did a rally. And so I introduced Eric Schmidt for that. Uh, that was just a couple weeks ago. And last night, I was just a guy in the crowd. Uh, didn't dress up for it. I was wearing a polo shirt and some shorts. And, you know, he, Eric, as he, you know, I, I went to the war room upstairs, never been in one of those before. He was very nervous. He's like, it's, it's a weird feeling. Polls are closed. There's nobody else I can convince. It's like, the work's done. Either I win or I lose. So I went downstairs and uh, the campaign came and got me and said, hey, crowd's getting a little bit rowdy. Um, we think we got this thing wrapped up. Would you mind coming upstairs, writing some stuff down and introducing him? So I was actually standing right next to him when President Trump called to congratulate him. That was pretty cool. Well, uh, what we're going to have to do now is because I know Josh Hawley. He's from Kansas City and was a high school football player at Rockhurst High School back when I was a sports writer. So uh, between we, we're going to have to get Josh Hawley and Eric Schmidt uh, to Nashville and get them on the show together, uh, me, you, and, you know, our Missouri uh, senators. Because, and again, I feel pretty, con should I feel pretty confident Eric Schmidt's going to win the general election? He would not uh, agree with this, but I, ha I would suggest he could sit at home for the next three months and still win the general by double digits. He's that popular in Missouri. Now, the, the Democrat he's who won He's as popular last as night. Joe Biden, it sounds like. Biden sat at home and won the election, so he's that popular. Wow. Fair enough. There is going to be uh, there's going to be some money coming in on the other side. It is a member of the Bush family, the Anheuser-Busch family, that won it for the Democrats. Oh. Uh, a female. And so, um, yeah, not not the uh, political Bush family, but the Anheuser-Busch family. Interestingly, you know, the elder Bush, who's like 85 at this point, threw a bunch of money in against the Greitens campaign. I think he's Republican. I think the girl's uh, brother is uh, actually introduced Eric Schmidt when he spoke at Grant's Farm here in St. Louis and said, listen, I know that's my sister, but that ain't it. You need to vote for Eric Schmidt. So uh, she doesn't even have all of the support of her own family at this point. I, I seriously think Eric Schmidt is unbelievably popular in Missouri. And you saw that last night. I mean, he won by maybe double the margin that people thought he would. Mm. All right. Uh, let's move on to the conversation I've been having about Brian Flores. And I think I'm going to unpack this question in a way that will be easy for you to uh, in, to offer an opinion without putting you in a tough spot, even though I know you can handle being in a tough spot. But uh, my argument today is that the greatest enemy of black coaches and black men is the victim mentality. And, and everybody is searching 
for their blackness by searching for their victimhood and how I'm oppressed. And that victim mentality is what I think drove a lot of, of uh, Brian Flores' thinking and the way he operated. And, and, and the victim mentality is not something that is in any way offered to white men. There are no excuses. You don't have an oppressor. And so white guys wake up every day like thinking like, I gotta do this because I have no excuse. No one's giving me one. And, and I think it's like an advantage that they have. That you, TJ Moe would never adopt a victim's mentality. Whereas I see a lot of black men falling into that trap and Brian Flores is one. And so people hear me a lot of times say, man, Whitlock's critical of black people. No, I'm critical of a victim's mentality that has been given to us, uh, demanded of us, and, and actually the people that want us to see us as victims, want us to be inferior <clears throat> and less confident and less ambitions, ambitious than a TJ Moe or any of our white peers. I think that's certainly the result. I don't know if that's their aim. I think there's some well-intentioned idiots who think they're doing something noble and they're not. Um, I would tell you in general that what you said is true, although maybe in a, a different way. If TJ Moe woke up and said I'm a victim, the world would laugh at me. So there are still a lot of TJ Moe's of the world that wake up and say, I'm a victim. Look at me. I can't pay my rent. You got to you gotta just work with me here. I, I can't do this. I can't, there's a reason for everything. Come on, something happened to me. You got to – and people would just laugh at me. Whereas uh, I, Brian Flores can do it and people would say, yeah, you know – a lot of stuff's happened in America over the years. You are oppressed. And he may even not do that. This is where I think the big disadvantage comes uh, as being a black man today. He may not wake up that way, but every single day people are telling him that. And then when you happen to be down on your luck, you do get fired. You're like, man, maybe there is something to this. And so it's been pounded into his head, even if he doesn't want the victimhood mentality, he's been force fed it. And so I do think that's a problem. Uh, one thing I was thinking about when you and Steve were talking, he, he had this paper trail of, hey, just in case anything happens, I'm going to make sure this documented. That was a reservation to fail. He said, when ultimately I get fired, here's what happened. And just, you know, and you could argue that he was using it as blackmail. Hey, don't fire me because I got something on you. It is so rampant in the NFL, the, the tampering that you were talking about, that back in 2013, 2014, the NFL threw their hands up and say, okay, we'll call it the legal tampering period, even though the entire phrase is contradictory. They said, we'll call it a legal tampering period because we can't get people to stop agreeing to contracts in principle. So we know you're talking. We get it. You're not supposed to be talking. We'll give you two or three days to be able to do it now before free agency. They actually had to create this. So this has been going on for all of human history of the NFL. Whenever the league started, you've been tampering forever. And so they try to put rules in. This was the most mainstream thing you could possibly do, as you pointed out. This is going 62 and a 55. But he documented it as his reservation to fail and potential blackmail. So he's got an out so that you could actually make the argument that he was planning this lawsuit from the moment he was hired. I got to find something because when they fire me because they're racist, then I'm going to have something on them and I'm going to start something here. 
He was planning for failure, and that's never a good thing. I, I, I want to say I'm going to say something I know you agree with, uh, but I think it'll lead to a conversation or just trying to explain to young people <clears throat> the nuances and, and what they need to understand. Everybody at some point is going to be a victim of unfairness. Everybody will be a victim of unfairness. That to me is the story of Jesus Christ. He did nothing wrong, but he was still a victim. How did he handle it? And so th that's the real question is how do you handle it? And so <clears throat> I can look at my own life and career. If I just took my journalism career, I have been met with unfairness during my journalism career. And, and some of it may have been racially based. And, and I could certainly cry you a long story about what happened to me at ESPN from 2013 to 2015 all the obstacles, all the people throwing banana peels everywhere, didn't want me to succeed. And, and so I could paint the, I'm a victim. And, and, and maybe I was. But, but what I don't have is a victim's mentality. I have a more Christ-centered mentality. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I can fix this. I can get up, I can, you know, I just fell to the ground. I can get up and I can do better and learn from this experience and still achieve all of my goals. And, and so I'm not gonna wallow in that victimhood or that unfairness. I'm going to immediately move on and start figuring out what I'm going to do next because this is the land of opportunity, the land of milk and honey. All you gotta do is get up on your feet and it's, it's out there to be got. And so I'll never, my, my biggest disappointment in my career, and I, I've talked about this before, I'm not, but when, when John Skipper fired me at ESPN in 2015, the day that that happened, I met with this, the team, the undefeated, whatever, told them what happened. Then I went home, crawled in bed, shed some tears, got up that night and said, it's over. I'm, not, I'm now moved on to what's next. What's next? And so I'm not telling Brian Flores like, hey man, I get it. This is disappointing. You got fired, but but a lawsuit and all this whining and crying and blah blah blah. Everybody, trust me. I, I guarantee you, T.J. Moe has a bunch of stories about some unfairness he had to deal with, and and. Every NFL coach has a story about unfairness they had to deal with. It's like, how do you handle it is what will define you. The Cleveland Browns fired Bill Belichick. He went on to become the greatest coach in NFL history. Everybody's going to fail. And if, if you don't have a victim's mentality, you can overcome that failure. Belichick, I think, went 11 and five the year prior to getting fired. And he still got fired. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's perspective. Uh, I love the way you, you, you laid that out because there have been a ton of unfair things that happened to me in my life. And also, I have a ton of unfair advantages. And I willingly acknowledge all of them. I have two unbelievable parents that had enough money to give me additional help. If I needed tutors in school, I got them. If I needed extra help 
at, I used to go starting like the fifth grade. I got extra athletic help that believe me, I needed, you know, it's like I had along the way, I had a ton of things. You could make an argument and you watched me play at Mizzou. I had, I was, I was second team all big 12 one year. You could make the argument that I wasn't even the second or third most talented receiver in my own class and that they gave me an advantage because I was from St. Louis and it would help recruiting. You can make that argument if you want to, Hey, get the St. Louis kid out there showing some success. Then we can get other St. Louis recruits out there. If it's close, get him the tiebreaker. You can make these arguments and I'll acknowledge that they might be true. And so along with all of the unfair things that happened to me along the way in the negative, there were a lot of unfair things that have happened to me in the positive. There is no reason that when we started that you didn't know anything about me. And now I'm sitting on a show that I love doing that is having success. That was there, there's nothing I did to earn that you picked up the phone and let's let's give this kid a chance and see what happens. People get good breaks all the time. And so I think it totally depends on your perspective. If you look around and say, hey, where I am in my life is a culmination of my decisions and how I handled the good and bad things that happened to me. So I, I just think th the one thing that strikes me about Brian Flores and how he's handled this whole thing, I, going through it now, observing it, I think it was pre-planned. Pre and I think it was the most selfish thing you could do. And he's trying to sell it as though it's the opposite. He's trying to say that mm. I'm doing this for all future black coaches. You just sabotage future black coaches. And th there's two ways that this can go, right? Because future black coaches, when they get a job now, they have to think, am I getting this because the NFL just thinks they're racist and they need to give a black dude a chance? Or if they don't get the job, it actually very well could be that these white owners don't want to take a chance of being called racist if they have to fire a bad coach. It puts them in a terrible position. Meanwhile, he gets to be the face of this thing as the guy fighting for social justice. And if one of these woke, uh, say the San Francisco 49ers have an opening at some point, they're in woke city USA, they may take a flyer on him. He gets another chance at, at a, as a head coach and they get all the credit for being the team that's not racist. So he's the only one that can benefit from this. All the other black people that he says he's standing up for are the ones who are getting screwed here. Mm. The, the other point you made uh, when we talked earlier today was you think he wouldn't get on board with Tom Brady and Steve, because Stephen Ross is a Michigan grad, has a longstanding relationship with Tom Brady. They go way back. But you don't think uh, Brian Flores would get on board with the recruitment of Tom Brady for selfish reasons. 100%. I think anybody, uh, we, we discussed the, the legal tampering versus the illegal tampering. This would have been illegal tampering. Uh, and he decided when he got there, hey, Tom, how long have we been talking about, hey, is Tom Brady, is it washed up yet? He's, he's 40. I think he just turned 45 to yesterday or a couple of days ago. It's like he's 40. He's washed up. He's got only a few years. If I want a long career here in Miami, I need to go with a young quarterback and I need to develop him. What can't happen is I bring Tom Brady here. Then we're having the same conversation. Is it Belichick? Is it Brady? Is it Brian Flores or is Brady just handling everything in Miami? So he said, I don't want any part of that. Don't bring in the greatest quarterback to ever live. And then when I have my success, he gets all the credit. And then if I struggle to rebuild for just a year or two, then they're going to fire me. So I don't want any part of that. So again, I don't believe the, the all of it was self-serving when it came to him not being involved in the meeting with Tom Brady. He wanted the credit himself and he wanted to use it now when asked as blackmail to the team. And again, a, a reservation to fail. There was none of it that was useful in any way, a, a, 
I'm not telling you you got to take that meeting if you actually have those convictions. Now, you're going to follow every single rule that the NFL's ever had. Good luck with that. But if you had those convictions, fine. But when the time comes and the legal tampering period comes, you better get on the phone with Tom Brady and you better do what your owner needs you to do. And you better not be a snitch if you want to be in the league for more than five minutes. Great job, TJ. Appreciate it. Uh, feeling a little less like your old self? Getting older definitely changes your body. As men age, our body naturally loses free testosterone. It happens to every man and can make it more difficult to stay in shape and be energetic and active. Maybe you don't have time to work out, but want the energy and body you once had. Wouldn't it be nice to have the energy to counter the negative physical effects of aging? Nugenics Total T Testosterone Booster contains testophen, which has been validated in five clinical studies shown to boost free testosterone levels in men. Because Nugenics Total T boosts free testosterone that the aging process robs, you'll feel stronger, leaner, and more energy and drive and more passion too. Your partner will notice the difference. Nugenics Total T is the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC and can help re-energize your life to help you get back to the powerful, confident, good-looking warrior you used to be. Now get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total T when you text FEARLESS to 231-231. Text now and get a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, their most powerful fat incinerator ever with key ingredients to help you get back into shape fast. Absolutely free. Text FEARLESS to 231-231. FEARLESS to 231-231. All right, uh, Virgil Walker is going to join us next. We're going to ask him to make it make sense. Next. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're bringing in uh, Virgil Walker to help me make sense of a video that uh, went viral. Uh, MSNBC uh, contributor, uh, Eli Mistel, you know, he's the black dude with the Don King hairstyle. You know, he hates the Constitution and says he should have written it or someone like him should have written it. Uh, now, here recently, uh, he attacked Herschel Walker on MSNBC. And so we'll bring on Virgil to have him make it make sense. Let's play the video of Eli in action. Yeah, first of or all, Ali I just want to thank Eli. the GOP for nominating a running back from Dallas to run in Georgia and a TV <laughs> doctor from New Jersey to run in Pennsylvania. That's thank you guys. Right. Yeah. But yes, it's going to be a close election in Georgia because Walker is has the backing of the Republicans. Now, you ask, why are Republicans backing this man who's so clearly unintelligent, who so clearly doesn't have independent thoughts? But that's actually the reason Walker's right. going to do what he's told. And that's what Republicans like. That's what Republicans want from their Negroes. 
to do what they're told. And Walker presents exactly as a person who lacks independent thoughts, lacks an independent agenda, lacks an independent ability to grasp policies, and he's just going to go in there and vote like Mitch McConnell tells him to vote. Mm. So it's the Republicans who do exactly what they're told, uh, and that's what Republicans like. Uh, Virgil, uh, can you help me make it make sense? Jason, first of all, I want to say, I know we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about Herschel Walker, and I'm Virgil Walker, but there's no relation. So let's start there. Uh, <laughs> um, it, this, gotcha. this whole diatribe, man, was just absolutely despicable. Uh, it was it was unbelievably racist. Uh, and MSNBC should absolutely be ashamed of itself uh, for for presenting I mean, for presenting this kind of kind of political uh, rhetoric uh, on its airwaves, um, this 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 is like shock jock radio. I mean, this this is what uh, what this guy is is into. I mean, he's he, in my mind, it's it's Ellie, I believe, is is how how you how you say his name. He he's a he's a like a bikini model on IG in need of attention, uh, with no substance. Uh, it's just absolutely ridiculous, kind of how how he thinks. This is the equivalent, if, if I could use a modern day analogy, this is equivalent of, of Will Smith getting up and, and slapping Chris Rock. Uh, th- this, is, this, is the, this is the rhetorical version of that same exact behavior that we see uh, that they, they, you know, liberals love to find the nearest black man that they can who can, who can kind of play the dozens, uh, say something real slick and fast, they put him on a show that, that no black person actually owns the rights to. Uh, and, and he's out there saying things that are absolutely uh, ridiculous. Uh, these are the same people who cry about systemic racism and the systems and structures that are in place to tear black people down. But at the same time, they're the ones who are engaged uh, in the tearing down of black men. There, there, were, there was a way for him to address uh, Herschel Walker and his on the issues uh, and not berate him to the degree that he did. I, I, I not only listened to the commentary, I actually read the article. That, that he started out by saying, Jason, that, that, that Walker was an animated caricature of a black person drawn from white conservatives. So that, that's the language that he uses. But then in the article, he proceeds to amplify those issues. So here he sees the, the behavior, the rhetoric of, of conservatives as racist, and then he doubles down and triples down on the same racist rhetoric in the article. Uh, he went on to say that that conservatives think you know, that conservatives who like Herschel Walker think that all black folks are big, ignorant and easily manipulated in the piece. That's exactly what he does. He, he did that in, in, in his commentary. He said that, you know, uh, Walker's going to do uh, what what uh, what all Negroes should be doing. Right. What, what all what 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 uh, conservatives believe that, that that black Negroes should be doing, which is obeying. Right. Uh, and kind of insinuating the, the house Negro kind of language uh, in in uh, in his dialogue. Finally, Jason, he says uh, that, that Walker is a political minstrel show sp- uh, and a splashy rendition of what whites think we sound and look like. I, I don't know if he's looked at a mirror lately, but at the end of the day, this, this kind of thing characterizes 
exactly what he engaged in. This was a minstrel show. I mean, it, it would have been, it, the only thing that would have been, been, been added is if he'd called himself Q-Tip with the hairstyle that he has uh, and, and really gotten engaged in a character. This was horrible on every, on every facet. And there was a way to address uh, the issues with Walker without getting into this kind of rhetoric. I think if he wanted to go on and say, hey, look, man, this is a former football player. He's not qualified to be, you know, in Congress. I'd have no problem with that. Uh, but, but this insinuation that Herschel is some sort of a puppet, it actually takes courage yes. for a black person to break from the democratic ideology and, and say, you know what, I, I'm gonna do something else. I don't like that approach. I don't think it works for us. That actually takes courage. 90 to 95% of black people just do whatever the Democrats tell them to do. Oh, you know what? I know you grew up in the church. I know you don't believe in same-sex marriage, but you know what? The Democrat party requires you to be for the same-sex marriage deal, and so you're for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know your Bible tells you that I knew you in the womb, but we're the Democratic Party. We believe in abortion. So you know what? Toss all that aside, your, your biblical worldview, toss all that aside, hop on board. And they do it. And then they look at a handful of people that say, hey, man, I just can't. I know what a woman is. I'm not having that debate about what a woman is. You're not going to move me away from biblical truths. And that's where we've gone to in this la-la land where we're now debating whether there's man or woman and literally one, just chapter one of the Bible lets you know there is man and woman. He made, right. he made them both. Right. Uh, and so I, I just, I'm amazed that he could get on television and pretend like Herschel is the guy doing exactly what he's told right. when the history says it's the left and particularly those of us that grew up in the church, right. we're doing, we're being very obedient to the Democratic Party and very disobedient to God. I, 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 I totally agree. With, I totally agree with you. I, I don't, I don't know uh, Ellie Mistel's, uh, uh, theological persuasion, what, what he, what, what, what his religious affiliations are, or if he has any religious convictions or theological convictions, uh, he may be in favor of all of those things, but to insinuate, uh, that, that simply because you, you hold to a, a biblical worldview that you are indeed a, the, the puppet, uh, that, that is, you know, th that is there to do the bidding of white conservatives uh, is absolutely ridiculous. Add to it what he tried to, the, the only substance that he had to his argumentation uh, was that he said, you know, blacks have not run, uh, or rather the GOP uh, has not run a black uh, in, 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 you know, in the Senate, uh, the U.S. Senate from the state of Georgia uh, ever until, you know, Raphael Warnock. Well, the reality is Raphael Warnock's the first black uh, person on the on the Democratic side uh, who who actually is, has has been able to to win and 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 when you look at the the, the numbers of senators from the state of Georgia, fifty seven of them were elected were elected as Democrats. Only seven of them were Republicans. So if if, if the issue is a party issue, uh, Democrats had a whole lot more opportunity to put uh, a, a black person into office uh, than the Republican Party had to. 
fo follow that up with this, Jason. I'm doing a little research, I found out in 1836 that that there were actually the original 33 black legislators were actually voted in from the state of Georgia. And guess what party that all 33 of them belonged to? The Republican Party. Republican. So again, you know, this guy's Harvard educated, uh, which doesn't mean much nowadays because, you know, at Harvard, they think that that men can be women and women can be men. Uh, it, it, none of that means much. But but if 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 he wants to be taken seriously, and I'm sure that that folks find, I, I remember when I was in high school, we played the dozens. We, you know, I'm I'm old enough where where we would get on the school bus and and and, and rag on each other and, and take each other out, you know, uh, or or you know, from a standpoint of oratory, we would engage in that. I mean, that that's about the 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 level of debate that he engaged in. If he wanted to be taken seriously, he should have been more substantive. He should have kind of steered away from all the pejoratives, uh, all of all of you know all of the ad hominem attacks, and really stuck to what was real. And he didn't do that in his piece. All right, uh, Virgil, you put me in a tough spot this morning. I read your uh, <laughs> critique of Reverend Tony Evans's kingdom race theology, and and uh, I'm a big fan of Tony Evans. Right. Uh, and it's funny, I, I, I think it was this week or last week, I talked with Tony Evans and I'm, I'm a, a huge fan. And what's funny is you, your critique of uh, kingdom race theology, I had just in the past 10 days, two weeks, just watched a sermon or two about kingdom race theology. This is Tony Evans's basic answer to critical race theory. He's saying instead of having critical race theory, we need a uh, kingdom race theology. And those of us that are believers need to represent the kingdom in a way that answers these questions about race. And, and so what I found interesting, and again, I'm a huge fan of Tony Evans. I didn't particularly love his sermon on kingdom race theology and found some holes in it. And, and, but I could not put my exact finger all the way on what I didn't like, mm -hmm. but you did. <laughs> and you wrote an article uh, with a critique of it that I think is amazing and uh, I wanna talk about it. And anybody, if, if some reason Tony Evans sees this clip, I love you, but no one's perfect and Everybody needs to have their work analyzed and, and discussed and talked about, particularly on an issue this important. Uh, so it does not change my affinity. Just And you made it crystal clear in the article how much respect you have. This guy's got four or five decades worth of work uh, in theology and bringing people to Christ. None of us are disputing that. But I, I did want you to, I wanted to give you an opportunity to educate me and the audience on what your problems are with his critical race theology. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jason, I want to I want to uh, just thank you for taking the time to to read the article uh, and and to think through it separate from the the connection that you have uh, with Tony. I think all of us as believers in Christ have an absolute responsibility to listen to a pastor and examine what they're saying against what the Word of God has to say. Um, I tried to do that. I tried to do that in a respectful manner. 
Uh, I tried to do that in a way that gives honor where honor is due with the work that, that Evans has done. Uh, even the, 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 I, was, I was putting this article together the week that you had aired some, uh, some of the clips uh, from Evans. And I thought, oh, no, he, he just kind of tapped me to say, hey, I'd love to, love to work with you. And, and he's got Evans on. I'm about to do a critique. Uh, and so I reached out to you, just said, hey, I want you to know this is coming. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I love about what you, what, what you do is you're open to having different points of view uh, on and, and, and having different people uh, uh, come on uh, and, and talk about these issues, specifically to uh, what I did in the piece. Uh, I, I wanted to examine the lenses that, or the lens that, uh, that Evans was using uh, in his definitions. I've, I've read the book. Uh, I've read the, the larger work that it is attached to. Uh, he's got a book called Oneness. Uh, that, and so I've, I've, I've looked at both of those books and examined. I've done a lot of uh, background and speaking and talking about the issue of critical race theory. As we know, it is invading every facet of culture from economics uh, to politics uh, to education. Uh, and unfortunately, it is invading the church as well. And I think a lot of that is due uh, to the nature of how things are, are functioning in the church church culture has really begun to embrace a, a pragmatic approach. They, they want to, they want to, they're more interested in being liked. Uh, they're more interested in, in being relevant than really standing on the revelation of the word of God. Uh, so in the piece, I wanted to examine three particular words that Evans, uh, that Evans uh, uh, defined. He defined the, the word racism. Uh, he defined the word uh, systemic racism. He defined the word critical race theory. Uh, I, I looked at those first against the backdrop of what these words mean by those who were who the originators, who were the inventors of the word. For example, re regarding critical race theory, uh, it comes out of critical legal theory, right? It, it started as a as people in 1989 who gathered uh, and and began to look at uh, what the law had to say. Uh, about uh, about issues of, of race. It, it examined cases, uh, and for the most part, where those cases did not come out in favor of, of someone who was, was black or, or, or a person of color, they wanted to examine those. They've taken that now and, and used that lens in, in every way uh, to examine every facet of culture. Some of the presuppositions behind critical race, or at least one of them that I address in the article, uh, is the idea that, that America at its foundation, at its core, is, is, is built upon a, a systemic racist system and that all of its structures have been infected by that systemic system. Uh, as a result, those structures need to be torn down. What follows uh, CRT theory is CRT praxis. Once you identify a, 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 the idea that something is indeed inherently racist and has been responsible for, for uh, taking a whole group of people down, uh, oppressing that group of people, what then follows is you've got to in turn do something to right that wrong. What kingdom race theory does is it adopts a lot of the presuppositions of critical race theory uh, and at this, while at the same time reframing them, renaming them uh, and, and still utilizing them. I wanted to look at the, the, the definitions and say these definitions are wrong, uh, they're incorrect, and they're not based upon what's most fundamental, and that is a Christian worldview. If, if, if your definitions are based upon some secular ideology rather than what the Bible has to say about those things, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Uh, and, and that was the case in this instance. And so I really, while I, while I, wanna, uh, while, while I wanna give 
uh, Evans all the respect due, uh, the work and effort and energy that he spent. Uh, I, I believe it's important to examine these things for, for the mere fact that he's about to influence one of the largest uh, denominations in the country, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, with this idea of critical race theory. And so as someone who's been Southern Baptist for almost a decade, uh, I thought it well worth those who follow me and who know uh, about my work uh, to examine it fairly, uh, critique it honestly, uh, and, to, and, to, and to take a close look at it and, and, uh, and, and provide warning where I, where I see fit. The SBC connection, I think, is critical here. And, and I should have mentioned that uh, off top, is that his critical race theology is about to be adopted and implemented and influence a large number of churches. Right. And, and that's where it may be necessary, like, hey, 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 let, let's be careful here uh, and let's, let's have a spirited debate yeah. about this. But, but it, it almost sounds like it's too late. It's already been adopted, but there should have been a more vigorous, spirited debate. And again, when I watched the sermon, and it may have been more than one, but I, when I, one of the sermons I watched, I could tell that Tony was a bit uncomfortable because he was like, kingdom race theology is his invention. He, 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 he said that and he was a bit uncomfortable and he didn't explain why it was uncomfortable, but I felt it as someone consuming the content. The reason you're uncomfortable is because you really only need to preach Jesus's theology right. and the gospel. Right. There is no, we don't need a new invention. We need to stick to the Bible and what's in here, it has all the answers for you. And, and one of the things I keep arguing with people, and I, I wanna hear your reaction to this, Virgil, sure. I keep trying to tell people, as it relates to race, because ministers are uh, appropriately trying to deal with the issue of race. Right. And, and the country is calling for that, everybody's, looking for direction on this race issue. And, and I keep saying like, hey, pump the brakes, people of faith. And just because the culture wants you to talk about racism doesn't mean that's how you should talk about it. The Bible talks about idolatry constantly. Right. Tony Evans, I've heard him preach about idolatry and say it's the root of all sin. Sure. And so we need to have a conversation about idolatry and racial idolatry sure. rather sure. than having a conversation about racism because right. this word is so powerful, so healing, so solution based. Stick to that. Right. Once you start bending to the culture and having the discussion they want you to have, there is no solution. There's just more debate, more content for everybody, more division, more chaos. Yeah. But if you t and so I, I would I don't think we need kingdom race theology. We need ministers to preach about the sin of idolatry and idolatry right. takes many different forms but we have a real bad racial idolatry problem here in America. 
No, I don't. I don't disagree with you. I think if we start, Jason, with with biblical language to begin with, we would understand that that all of us are one human race created in the image of God. Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. We would understand that that from one man comes comes every nation uh, under heaven. The word nation there in Acts uh, seventeen twenty six is the word ethnos which is where we get the idea of ethnicity. So from one man, we all we all come uh, from that one man, Adam. Uh, if we're talking about race says of, of, of groups of people, uh, scripture from a New Testament standpoint only sees two. Uh, it sees those who are in Adam, who are still uh, who are still in their sinful state and those who are in Christ who have been forgiven of their sin uh, and stand in a righteous uh, place before God. Uh, they stand before God justified. So so if, if I'm looking at my 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 group, my family, my, my tribe, my tribe are those who claim the name of Christ uh, and, and I, of, of every of every hue. Uh, of every level of melanin, uh, of, of every of every uh, geo uh, ge- geographical location. Uh, so I, I could go from here to any other place in in the world. And if you if you call yourself a believer in Christ and do indeed follow uh, what what he what he says in his word, you're my brother, you're my sister. And so th- that's that's the group I'm connected with. There's there's no need for me to then break down uh, the, the the divisions of of you know of, of this ethnicity, that ethnicity, that level of melanin, this level of melanin. Melanin, and we're all created in different, you know, groups. That, that those kinds of ideas, uh, you know, come from guys like Samuel Morton, uh, who actually his false science of craniometry actually created what we understand as, as you know, scientific racism. Uh, it's the idea of races. That's when you when you look in in, in the uh, in, in history books uh, back in school and you see these these uh, skulls that were specific sizes, and these were to be representative of specific races. That that comes from the 1800s, where 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 uh, a lot of his ideas were used and promoted to advance uh, slavery. Uh, so when we so when we reach back to those breakdown of ideas and uh, this race and that race, we're actually pointing back to something that was inherently racist. It was designed to subjugate people groups. If we stick with what Scripture has to say on this subject matter. We understand we're image bearers of God. We're all part of one human race uh, and that we have a responsibility to repent of sin, place our faith in Christ and follow him so that we can be adopted into the family of God. We don't need kingdom race theology. Mm. Tony, if someone sends you this to you, I love you and (laughs) you're great. I agree with Virgil on this topic, though. Uh, Virgil, stick with us. Uh, We're going to do some Tennessee Harmony. Going to introduce you to Pastor Bobby Harrington, Pastor Anthony Walker, uh, and a topic that I hope that I can unpack. They may have some thoughts on what we just talked about as well, but I'm going to try to unpack. I told you already at the top of the show. I'm going to try to unpack that and get Bobby and Anthony's take on that and Virgil's as well. Uh, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock, hit notifications, hit subscribe. Tennessee Harmony, little Virgil Walker. Next. All right, welcome back. Time for a little Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Bobby, Pastor Anthony uh, here with us, as well as uh, Virgil Walker still joining us. 
uh, via Skype as we do every Wednesday. Uh, we'll ask uh, Bobby and Anthony to bless the conversation and then we'll get into it. I'll start. Uh, God, what a great privilege it is to be able to talk about you and what you teach us and how you call us to live. And so we just pray you'd use this time today to advance your purposes, God. Father God, as always, we're thankful for the opportunity to share in this platform of putting forth your word, your truth, which transforms lives and saves souls. We're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, and so, guys, uh, I, I, my boss is here, the CEO of The Blaze, and I, I said earlier this week we went out to dinner and had a very long, fascinating conversation. And one of my takeaways, just listening to his spiritual journey, uh, we got into a conversation about, so about the Mormon church, the Catholic church, and some of their practices of rules, I, I call it rules, stipulations, standards you have to meet. Be, you know, I love, I, and I don't care, and I'm probably always going, I love the Mormon mission. I think it's a great tool to uh, get men to ante up, learn about themselves. When you say the Mormon mission, you mean mission going trips. on a two-year mission. Yes, yeah. the two-year mission trip. I think it's a great rite of passage. Yeah. Helps build a man, strips him down to the bone. And, and then I also think about uh, one of my nephew's greatest experiences was four years he spent at St. X Church in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, the Catholic Church that Catholic education experience had a great impact on him. Very structured, very, here's the dress code, here, just rules and stipulations, and it makes me, and, and me and my boss were having this conversation about like, are there enough rules, stipulations, uh, as a part of the Christian faith and walk? Because, again, no one's as, as a Christian, I get where the Mormon church, Joseph Smith, some of that silly, I, Catholicism, I get where they screw off course, but I can't deny the results of some of the requirements that go along with being a Catholic or a Mormon, and I'm wondering if we shouldn't be looking for opportunities to put some demands, some yeah. stipulations on things, and so I'm coming to my experts uh, <laughs> to help me understand. Make it make sense for me, guys. So dangerous, so dangerous to call anybody an expert. We would probably not accept that uh, description. But let's talk about what you're talking about. Yeah. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Uh, you know, Jason, when you look in history at uh, the practices, let's, let's talk about uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, things like fasting and uh, Catholic schools and catechisms and things like this. Or if you take like uh, in the Wesleyan movement with John Wesley, uh, with the Methodists, they were called Methodists because they kept relying on methods mm -hmm. to help you to be a godly person. And uh, you mentioned uh, the, some of the really good things that the Mormons do. Uh, they'll have a seminary or school before school. Uh, when their kids are in high school, um, and then they have, you know, like you said, going on a two-year mission. And I just want to say that the idea of practices that you call people to commit to, to help them to become more like Jesus, 
is the, it's the historic way of Christianity, and it's a good thing. And so many churches have abandoned it uh, to our peril today. So I just want to start off by saying, I applaud what you're saying, and there's great merit to it, in my opinion. Why don't we do more of it? Why? Well, you know, How did we get away from it? Even, well, one of the areas that I see that we get away from it, you know, God's Word has all the instruction we need, um, but we have stretched this idea of judgment and accountability. We've stretched those. So now ways that I may just be holding you accountable. You're my brother in Christ. I say, hey, man, you can't do this. This is not what God calls us to do. The first thing that people say, no, oh, you can't judge me. So now we've mixed up accountability with judgment, whereas we're supposed to be calling one another to the carpet. We're supposed to be encouraging one another to, to uphold the standard. In those practices and disciplines, they hold up a standard and the accountability that comes with it. But sometimes how you know, people look at the word and try to skew it to the way that they wanna do, we remove that accountability to where now it's just kind of, well, I know he's not right, but I can't say anything to him because I don't want him to think I'm judging him. And now we've mixed up. And, and you look at what that will do generation after generation. Virgil, I'm going to start with you, but I want these guys to chime in. I'm going to bring it home a little bit more and get a bit more pointed. I love that uh, someone in the Catholic Church out in California said, you know what, Nancy Pelosi, th this stuff you're saying about abortion is garbage. Uh, basically, we're, we're calling you out. You can't participate or basically halfway booted her out of the church. I like that. I, 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 and, and what's wrong with that? Because I, I've, I've seen people in alleged Christian churches preach this pro-choice message. And I'm just like, well, how, what God are they serving? What Bible are they reading? And I wish we had a standard to say, oh, a minister lets that fall out of his mouth. If Raphael Warnack calls himself a, a pro-choice pastor, we can just kill the pastor and just say he's a pro-choice politician. He's been booted from the church. What's wrong with that? No, I, Jason, I, I totally hear you. I think, I think, there's, some, I think there's some right things uh, about that. There's some right things about that. I think, that, I think there's a difference between, uh, and I, I, know, I know the brothers there will, will We'll, uh, we'll be able to kind of unpack this a little bit. There's a difference between works-based righteousness, the idea that, that, that I, could, I could do right things in an effort to please God uh, to get to heaven. Uh, we know that that's incorrect. If, if that were the case, Christ wouldn't have needed to come, right? Uh, we know that Christ came because we couldn't do what was necessary to obtain eternal life. So Christ came we repent of sin. We place our faith in him. We're justified. We're right. We're in right standing before God because of the finished work of Christ. Scripture says that it, it's not of, it is not of my works. Uh, it is all of his grace. Right. It's by faith. It's by grace through faith that, that I come to God. On the other hand, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter six, you know, what, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and the answer is obviously no. There's a moral standard. There are things that we should do, and, and that's the aspect of, of sanctification. Our lives should, become, should be conformed into the image of Christ. The challenge that you're having, Jason, that you've put your finger on is few churches are actually, A, teaching that well, uh, and B, operating from a standpoint of, of, of church discipline. 
what you're describing in the Catholic Church that, 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 that you know, for all of its flaws, for all of the issues, and I, I'd be, you know, we could do another another segment on what we think, what we find wrong with the Catholic Church. But, but, but with, with regard to Christianity, getting it right, what Christianity needs to do is churches need to actually practice church discipline. And what that looks like is that looks like brother to brother, man. If I see you out there doing stuff you shouldn't be or acting in a certain way, I'm saying, hey, bro. Let's 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 not do that. That's not how that's not how we operate. That's not how we get down. We we we, we operate in this frame. We we do things in this way. Uh, and and now if you say, well, I don't care what 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 you say. I don't care what the word says. I'm gonna do what I want to do the way I want to do it. Well, now we've got an issue that I've got to go find another brother and take that brother to that individual and say, hey, brother, I, we've talked. Scripture's clear. Man, you shouldn't be out at the strip club. That's that's not that's not a look for Christians. Uh, and then if that brother still maintains that sinful state, that sinful act, we go to the church and we, we tell the church. But the, the, the issue is this. We're in such a pragmatic society. We're in such a litigious society that church leaders are afraid to engage in this level of church discipline. Biblically spelled out, Matthew 18, how this should work. We're not doing that. So what we have are people who claim the name of Christ and are representing him in ways, in spaces and in places that that it, it, it totally looks contrary uh, to the actual claim of following Christ. Uh, he's right. So uh, I, I, I just want to uh, carefully delineate what we're talking about here, because we started off pra- talking about practices uh, and paths to become a certain kind of person. And uh, that's a really fruitful conversation because uh, when you look at the examples you are bringing up, a lot of those are practices and paths to help you to become more like a Christ-like person. The second thing that you brought up, which is different, is the idea that I can claim to be a Christian, but I can live however I want. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that if you don't have a lifestyle that is an obedient faith, you're not a real Christian. Then the third thing is, uh, that was just brought up, is the Bible teaches that there is accountability in the local church for living sinful lifestyles. And uh, accountability for living sinful lifestyles. I can give you a really good Go example oh, if I'm you'd sorry. like it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to use my, my father as an example. So my father uh, became a follower of Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus in his 40s, uh, after I did. The, the man who uh, baptized me into Christ, baptized my father into Christ a few years later. And my dad uh, stopped drinking initially. Uh, and then a few years later, he started uh, getting drunk again. He'd go out of town, he'd, get, uh, he'd come back and he'd be drunk. Uh, now, at this time, I uh, was the lead minister of the church my, my dad was at. And uh, so we tried to follow uh, what was just brought up. It's from Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. It's a method of accountability. So the first person to talk to him was my mother. And uh, she said, Bill, that's not right what you're doing. And he blew her off. Well, he, he's really fallen. He was losing the way with getting drunk. And the guys at work were noticing. My brother-in-law worked with him. And my brother-in-law tried talking to him, and he wouldn't listen. So the Bible says, uh, it, you know, if somebody's trapped in a sinful way, go and see them. If they won't listen to you, take one or two others along. If they won't listen, you know, you go to the next step. So here's what we did. 
I asked my dad to come to a meeting. We had, uh, my brother-in-law was there and a couple of elders from our church. And uh, we sat down at the table and uh, we brought up what was going on and he didn't like it. And uh, he was angry and uh, there was kind of a back and forth. And we had this, uh, his name's Richie. He's just a godly man, but he would stutter. And my dad was fighting what we we're saying, trying to say it's not true. And Richie looked at me, he goes, Bill, that's not right. And my dad looked at him and then he went like this and he got soft and he looked down and he said, you're right, Richie. I'm not doing right. And that Monday, my dad went to a 30-day treatment center. Praise God. And he never struggled seriously again with alcoholism after Praise that point. God. Praise God. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, that all, both of those passages, that really defines all, what the Bible has already laid out. It's already laid out the steps, but we are hesitant to enact them because of as was said before, you know, we don't want to lose the friendship of others. We don't want to. That could have really damaged the relationship between Bobby and his father. His, I mean, all, the relationships are on the line, but they look to God's word to say, no, we're going to honor God. We're going to honor God in this moment and let the chips fall where they may. The issue that I'm finding is um, we look at culture and we think that that's how we're going to take that into the Lord's church. Within our culture, we live a democratic small d. We do what we want to do. And if we don't like it, you know, this is the rule. Well, it's a stupid rule. Well, I'm not going to follow it. But we live in a theocracy, you know, a, a monarchy of God as king. And when God is king and Lord of your life, it's not I do what I want to do. I got to do what God says do. And I have to submit to that. But because we you know, in our society live in a democratic way, we think that I can do what I want to do and you can't tell me and nobody else can tell you. No, God's laid down his word and that's what tells us. But this culture, I would argue and perhaps inaccurately, is, and the government is a reflection of what we tolerate or what the energy we're putting out into the air. And so what part of my argument that I'm saying is like, I, I believe that this was a Judeo-Christian country founded on Christian values and principles. And as the Christian church has reduced its standards and uh, re seems to require less, and again, I could be wrong, but this is just the way I feel, seems to require less, uh, and anybody can call themselves a Christian, Yeah, that I now see a culture that has no standards of behavior yeah, for right. anything. Yeah, right. I, I literally, I, I this morning I tweeted out like, Beyonce's album is garbage. She's cursing throughout it. I'm like, this is a 40 year old mother of three yeah. that's dropping the MF word. Yeah. Like she's sitting in my father's masterpiece lounge, and and, and I'm just. She was supposed to be the replacement, the new queen of soul for Aretha Franklin, but I go. I can't even be mad at her. She's reflecting, and she calls herself a Christian or did at one time. But, but I guess I'm, I'm saying, like, because Christianity had been the pervasive culture, I go look at the Mormons, and they got standards, 
And again, I don't think their religion is right, but at least they got some standards, mm -hmm. some rules, and mm -hmm. they'll boot you out. I'm looking at the Catholics, call out Nancy Pelosi publicly uh, because of her stand on abortion. And I, I, it feels like I don't see that from us. So, so yeah, I think that uh, this is going to depend on your exposure. So if we're to talk about mainstream kind of common cause evangelical churches, I think you're making a really good point. Okay, but there are churches, and we're trying to be one of these churches. I think Anthony's trying mm -hmm. to be one of these churches mm -hmm. where we are trying to do some of the things that you're talking about. The hardest thing I've ever done in church leadership, Jason, is to follow that passage of accountability that we just, we just talked about. In our church here in Tennessee, we've, we've done it about eight times all the way. And the terrible things people say about you as a church leader, <clears throat> how they, they, they threaten to sue you, all your terrible motives and all of that. But let me tell you what it does. It creates a church where people care more about upholding godly standards of staying married when it gets really difficult. Because we have made a decision, and it's a part of the commitment that people make when they become a member, is we're going we're gonna to do our best to uphold the teachings of Jesus here. And if Jesus calls something sinful, we're going to be accountable to one another Amen. for that teaching. That's yeah. what the Bible says. That's the presupposition throughout Scripture and in the early church. And the fact that churches are selling out today is really tragic, as you've said. So you create all these people who claim to be Christians when they're really not true Christians, they're not true disciples of Jesus. In fact, we've got a passage for you that I just want to share with everybody to get it out there. Jesus himself said it this way. Not everybody, it's from Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. I think we can put it on the screen. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. So not everybody who says, hey, Jesus, you're my king, my God, my savior. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will mm -hmm. of my Father in heaven. Meaning, you have to have a faithful faith. It's not just saying it. It's not a mental ascent. It's not just emotional warmth to Jesus where he's your buddy. No, you have to surrender to him and live a life of faithfulness, allegiance, and devotion. So I read that scripture this morning and I thought like a Catholic would jump on that and, or a Mormon would jump on that and say, yeah, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> mm -mm. If you're not doing the will, that's, that's the point. Jesus yeah. says, you'll tell who you're, you, you're mine if you do what I'm telling you to do. And my argument is that Catholics and Mormons are saying, yeah, and we're out doing it. Right. Y'all just say, just believe and that's good enough. Yeah, actually, uh, Let's talk about this for a second, because that is the critique historically that many Catholics would make of Protestants with their emphasis that we're saved by grace through faith. Yes. Okay, and uh, some of my good friends who've been Mormons would also point out to how their lives are so different from these evangelical Christians who claim to believe in Jesus. And I just want to say there's some merit to what they're saying. Gotcha. Now, it really comes down to, and I think Anthony was getting at this. What is it to obey the teachings of Jesus? Is it to say the, the, the rosary? 
to go to the confession booth? Well, that's not the teachings of Jesus, I'm no. sorry. Is it to be married for time and eternity in the temple? Well, no, that's not the teachings of Jesus. How about forgive your, your neighbor? How about stay with your marriage? How about uh, don't look at pornography because it's, it's lusting after somebody? I mean, there are these teachings that Jesus is sticking to, and I think those are the ones we need to focus on while acknowledging that they make a good point. Let me underline what he, one of the things he, he mentioned as well. I do receive that critique sometimes, and, and the world could look at us to see us that way, that, hey, you guys are, you know, you've got your Beyonce's out there. You, they say they're Christians, and it looks, and it does cheapen what God really is. We say he's our king, but our lives don't reflect it. But Jesus would say, you will know, they will know your mind by how your life reflects it. By They're the going to know. So, so we've got to do a better job. And, and that means that at times we're going to have to be uh, church. We're going to have to exercise church discipline and take on the critique, take on the, oh, well, I'm leaving that church. But what's left behind is a church that says, hey, we're standing with God we're going to do what God tells us to do, even if it means sometimes you may have to leave. There were times that Jesus's disciples, John chapter six, they walked away because of hard teaching. He didn't chase after him. He didn't go after. Oh, don't leave. I, come on. I will. He made no exception because he stuck with what he was teaching. So Virgil, I'm going to start with you. And this will be our final question. And we, we got I got to get out of here. But uh, uh I'm going to go back to my thing about the Mormon mission, the mission trip they require of men, and me having the conversation I did on Monday, and, and I'm just, it makes me ask, what do we require right. of our young boys or even grown men? What do we require? Because that mission trip, and as I was listening to my friend describe his mission trip and that whole process of two years and how when you come home from that, Women, that they go, that's the guy I want to marry. They want to marry the guy that went on the mission trip. The guys that didn't go on the mission trip are not as attractive to women. Uh, and so that rite of passions of the mission trip, I think, has great value. And, and again, when we go look at the results of what kind of families, what kind of kids that produces or whatever, that's part of a process of building men. And I'm... What and so what in the what is our rite of passage? What what obstacle course do we put our young boys through to produce better men as Christians? Virgil, and, and maybe it's a suggestion. What should we do? What do we do? And then we'll let our two experts and then we'll get out of here. <laughs> So-called experts. There you go. No, I, Jason, I think you raised a lot of points. There were so many great things that were said during the course of that conversation. I, I was trying to, I was amening back here quietly and uh, wanting to jump in at the same time. Uh, but, but I think, I think there's, there's, there is something to what we see when we see uh, kind of the outward uh, affirmation, the outward expression of what we believe is, is, is right. And I think that's what you're seeing uh, with, with the Mormon mission. I, I know young men. Uh, who are part of the church that go uh, on mission that that are they're engaged uh, in some form of service, uh, but but these are all outward ex external things that man can see, and those are those are great things. The thing that's unique uh, about the Christian faith, 
uh, is it is it while every other culture cultural ideology while every other religious form desires transformation from the outside with the hope that it'll get inside christianity is the only unique uh, faith that says transformation begins on the inside as it as it works itself out in the life of the believer i think you have every right jason to think I, we should see more fruit in the lives of believers. And, and, and I believe that there is a, there's a biblical rationale for that. One, Bible's not being taught as much uh, in churches. Folks are giving motivational TED Talks rather than real sermons, uh, really walking through the text of scripture. Paul took six chapters when he wrote to the, to the church at Ephesus to walk them through th three chapters of rich theology and then followed by three chapters of this is how you must live now that you know these truths are real. If we would just open the book, all of what you're what you're desiring to see uh, it, it worked out in the life of believers is absolutely there. It's in the book. It's there. How do we get young men to operate in this manner? We teach them. We train them. We, we open up the word of God and, and disciple them. There, there are young men that, that, that I have in my life who, who I've discipled, who I've taught, who I've engaged in. There are young men now who are approaching me now saying, brother, I see your life. I see your, your wife. I see what's going on. Is, is there a way we could get together and connect and, and talk about the things of God? I'm newly married. I'm trying to understand how to walk this life in such a way that it honors God. And we're, we're having those conversations. So, yes, it's taking place. It's, it's definitely not. Uh, we, we, we're definitely not Beyonce. So everybody is not seeing it on the on the you know, on the on the front lines. But it is happening uh, and it happens at great churches uh, like the ones you have re represented here uh, where we're engaged in one another's lives and, and are walking through biblical accountability uh, and, and a biblical fidelity, believing that scripture is sufficient to guard our lives. So I'm just going to summarize a whole bunch of stuff because this is such an important conversation. The first thing is that we want to teach practices for godliness. We want to teach people that to be a godly person, to become more and more like Jesus, you've got to practice spiritual habits. Uh, Dallas Willard is a, a person that I would recommend to everybody who's watching, uh, just in the whole idea of spiritual formation and practices. Now, when it comes specifically to children, let, let me uh, try to address that. When both of my children reached 18 years of age, we had special ceremonies that we, we trained them in advance for these uh, ceremonies. Let me talk to you about my son. When my son turned 18, uh, I had a manhood ceremony. I had to find what a man is for him so that he would know. Uh, we hiked the Grand Canyon to commemorate it so that he would always know. I got my father to sit down and tell him about what it meant to be a Harrington man. And then I gave him a plaque that he still has uh, 18 years later, uh, describing what it is to be a godly man uh, that, that I've uh, led him into to make a commitment to. Secondly, I believe that we need to really look at uh, a gap year program. The Mormons have this uh, mission for two years. Uh, I think you've, you've uh, described some of the benefits. Uh, as churches right now, I'm in conversations with some of my friends about gap year experiences. In fact, Jason, about a year ago, Jason Hauser was on the show with you. His, his, he's discipled his kids that they take a gap year, they go with YWAM on foreign missions, and he says they come back absolutely transformed. 
Right now, when we're just sending our kids from high school into the university, we're literally sending them into a war that they're not prepared or equipped for, and uh, we're not giving them the tools and the training. The idea of a gap year of mission service is a fantastic idea that I would commend. Anthony, before you, I'm gonna give you a final word. Before you go, I wanna add this from your sermon this Sunday. You talked about making glass and how you know, you're gonna go through some trials and tribulations that are almost gonna feel like you're gonna die, you're gonna come out of them, you're gonna survive them, and you're gonna be even stronger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking, <laughs> where's the base, are we putting kids through basic training? Making them ante up, testing them, preparing them for the fire, taking them to that heat point. Yeah. And, and so, are we doing enough of that? And, no, it's a fair critique. I don't know if we're doing enough. Um, I know efforts that we need to be doing, like Bobby's saying, and do more of. Um, I would go all the way back to uh, what Walker was talking about just a moment ago. That's a good guy, Walker. Um, <laughs> what he was going back <laughs> with children, the scripture says, Proverbs 22 and 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. As fathers, we need to know the way our ch children should go so that we can train them and prepare them for that method. And it is a training. It is a discipline. It is a daily walk. It is a daily uh, study and exercise in that. I'm not opposed to any of those methods that may teach discipline. The military boot camp has a great program that, that creates that kind of discipline and creates some good, strong, regimented men I'm more interested in a transformation of the heart. If that gets transformed, all of those other things will work. But are we doing that good enough job? I think we can do a better job, especially with our young generation. We do need to, as Deuteronomy teaches us, teaching them the word as they go out, teaching them as they come in, modeling a family, a marriage for them that we give them aspiration to look at. If their aspiration is Beyonce and Jay-Z, we failed. We failed as parents, we failed as the church. If, if that's the model that they aspire to, but if they don't have anybody to connect with, to see, wait, this is what a spiritual father, mother, marriage, man, woman looks like, then that's the path that we need to send them on. I'm, I'm gonna end on this note. And I'm not going to let you guys respond. It's my show. Uh, <laughs> is I think if I had to summarize all my thoughts, is we seem committed, our generation, I mean we, and people seem committed to the best gift I can give my kid is a privilege I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying the society, cultures, all, how can I make it easier for my kids? It was hard for me. And I see so many, particularly guys, I was like, well, the fact that it was hard for me is what actually gave me my drive and determination and helped make me successful. And so, again, I go, the gift you can give your kids probably isn't privilege, it's a test. Uh, drop them in some fire, don't <laughs> let them burn up, but <laughs> warm, warm their rear ends up might be the best thing we could do. All right. Let's play some harmony and get out of here. Appreciate the conversation. Virgil, great job. Uh, see you guys next week.
Get to me 